Don't you wish that you could see that star blazing against the midnight backdrop, interrupting the mundane, ordinary night, sparking this undeniable need to follow? Don't you want to see it? I mean see it with your own eyes. Some people search for that their entire lives, you know. There was at one time a movement among biblical scholars to analyze all of the ancient astrological records that could be found. They were hoping to find something that would prove the appearance of the star described in this text of Matthew. Something that was so large and definitive, they reasoned, it must have been a generational occurrence, so surely there must be some sort of record of it. It was as though if they themselves could not see it with their own eyes, they at least wanted to verify, to prove, that someone once did. We saw the star, they say in the text today. And so we've come to pay homage to this King of the Jews. This Epiphany Sunday is the day that we celebrate them. These magi who were swept by the wonder of the star against the vast expanse that surrounded them in their lives. And then they pursued it. They followed it. They courageously gave their all to the brilliance that startled them into finding the Messiah. But they did all this because they saw it against the sky. And of course, despite all of our analysis, despite every bit of historical scrutiny we can bring, no record of this can be found. We can't see it. There's actually so much about this story that is uncertain, that is unknown to us. We don't really know, for instance, if there were three, only that Matthew lists three gifts. We don't really know where they came from, only that they were Gentiles or non-Jews traveling from somewhere east of the star. We don't actually know if they were men, only that a male noun is used to describe them. And that noun, we don't even know if they were wise. The word is magi. It's a Persian word, the root of our word magician, a word that the ancients used for any number of mysterious figures like seers and interpreters of dreams, sorcerers, astrologers. There's so much that is unknown, that is uncertain. But then how often do we confuse verifiable certainty with faith? It seems to me this is the kind of test that we are often giving God. Show us something. Show us something large, something bright, something bold, something that interrupts the mundane. Demonstrate your existence in some way that can't be denied. Prove it to us ways that we need you to with we can't miss. I don't want my faith to be blind, after all. I want to be informed. I want to be reasoned. Frankly, I'd prefer to be clear and to be certain. I want to see. This kind of stargazing is as old as the prophets. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet who thundered for us throughout Advent, whose voice speaks so clearly with expectation, can be at times heard crying out to God almost with a kind of frustration or desperation. God, we want you to make yourself known down here. Break open the heavens. Move the mountains. How we wish you would make your name known to those who oppose all of your goodness. We want you to cause the nations to tremble with your presence. In other words, Show up, God. Do something. Break things open. Do something that we can see. Something that we can hear. Flash something against the sky for us. Because that kind of a God 
is a God that I can always see. That's the kind of God that I can always hear. That's the kind of God that I can easily follow, that I can clearly explain. But then God doesn't come that way. I guess there are those few so distant from us that can see a star so bright that they set the path of their lives to it, but most of us aren't going to see it. And most of us are going to have to look for other signs. One of the holy moments that I look forward to every year in the rhythm of Advent and Christmas is the day when I receive the annual Advent devotion that's written by my good friend Roger Smith. Roger was a deacon from our former church who always takes one day in the church's Advent guide, a kind and compassionate man. Roger has his own ministry in New York City. He's an attorney who has an active career, but he also has a Monday Bible study for friends who, for one reason or another, have become frustrated or disenchanted with God or with the church, have been wounded, are seeking to heal. And he writes of one friend, Donnie, whom he met some 40 years ago when he was an undergraduate studying for the ministry. At 20 years of age, Donnie was kind and generous. He was a good speaker. He was an excellent student. He was a star in this school. But it was a year later that he told a few friends and teachers that he was a gay man. And immediately, some friends, including his former youth pastor, they asked Donnie to quit coming around. And the rumor mill started, and a large church that had offered him a position upon graduation, they took back that offer. And where he was looking for support, Donnie found only distancing and this loss and fracture of relationship. And Roger says that his letters from this time, they chronicle a growing loss and anger until finally Donnie walked away from the church and he also walked away from God and he never looked back. Roger writes that the intervening decades have been rich and full for Donnie, that he may be the most generous man I know. And though he has many Christian friends, he has let all of us know that he has no interest in talking about church or the Bible or God. And if you persist, his anger returns and he will walk away or he'll hang up. But Roger describes how last Advent something remarkable happened. happened. It was small. He couldn't see it. He almost missed it amidst everything else. But at the end of a long phone conversation, just before he hung up, Donnie said ever so softly, oh yeah, for what it's worth, I've been praying a little lately. I've been praying for the first time in a long time. And Roger writes, Donnie said this softly, as softly as a baby crying in a manger. Oh, there are bold and powerful moments in the story of Jesus' birth. There are those can't-miss-it moments, great spectacle and strength. There's that angel chorus. There's that appearance to Mary and Joseph. And there's that star that is shining so brightly and compellingly that it has them searching, traveling, setting out for a light unlike the other lights before it. But the definitive moment... The moment at the center of it all, it's small, it's particular, it's intimate, and you can almost miss it. It's in a place as seemingly inconsequential as Bethlehem. It's to individual people, Mary and Joseph of Nazareth, 
It's right there amidst their struggles. It's with all of this raw detail from the manger in which they place him to the strips of cloth that they can find within reach to wrap him against the night air of Bethlehem. Because that's how God comes to us. God doesn't break open the heavens to come down. God sneaks into the barn on the edge of a town to be born in a stable in a world where everybody is so often just gazing at the sky, looking for something large. Frederick Buechner is a wonderful spiritual writer whom some of you know. He writes about a time in his life when he was a young clergy person and he and his wife were doing all of the things that anybody does on Christmas Eve. They had hung the stockings, they had tucked in their children, they had lugged the presents down of hiding and out of hiding and they had piled them up under the tree and they were about to fall exhausted into bed and that's when Beekner remembered his neighbor's livestock. He lived in upstate New York and his neighbor had these sheep and the man had asked him to feed them for him while he was away. And in the press of all of the other matters that night, he had forgotten about them. And so down the hill, he had to go through knee-deep snow. He gets two bales of hay from the barn. He carries them out to the shed. There's this 40-watt bulb hanging by its cord from the low roof, and he turns it on. And the sheep huddle in a corner, watching as he snaps the baling twine. He shakes the squares of hay apart. He starts scattering it about. They come bumbling and shoving to get at it. Their foolish, mild faces, the puff of their breath showing in the air, and he's reaching to turn off the bulb and leave when suddenly he realizes just where he is. He senses the winter darkness, the glimmer of light, the smell of the hay, the sound of the animals eating, and he realizes where he is, of course, is the manger. He only just saw it. He almost missed it. His business, above everything else, was to have an eye for these things. On his best days, he believed that everything that is most precious anywhere comes from the manger, but he himself almost missed that he had just been there, that the world is the manger. And I've come to a place in my life of faith that I can admit that I just haven't seen the star and that I never will see anything that bold, that generational, that big. But if I'm paying attention to my life, how many signs and wonders surround? How many ways is God coming near to me? Because if you're always looking to the sky for the star, well, you might fail to glimpse the mother, the father, looking for room right in your midst. And if you're always so focused on the heavenly host, you might not notice all of the earthly ways that God's grace and presence are known. And if you're always listening for the earthquake or for something to rip open, you will not hear that softness of the baby's cry. And God comes to us like that. God loves us like that. And it's not always in the ways that we want or demand or expect as much as it is in the ways that we truly need. David Dickerson is an author and a humorist. You may have heard some of his work to this end on National Public Radio or This American Life. Well, in one story, he reminisces about his own journey of faith. And he recalls a time as a young man in his late 20s when he was out to dinner with his father. And he says, my father didn't know it, but we were at war. And the war that David was waging 
was over his frustration and his discontent with the faith of his youth. I'd been raised a Christian, he wrote. Then I went off and I majored in religious studies in college. And from my very first scholarly class in the history of the Bible, my faith just began to crumble until there was very little left. And now I had this game that I could play. I was excellent at it, where if you open a Bible to any page, I could find five flaws. I could, I could find all of the holes in it. And he was ready to do this to his father. It was Christmas time. He was just waiting for his dad to mention something about the virgin birth, the angels, or the star in the sky. He was primed, and so they ordered their burgers, their sprites, and he said, So dad, what's your life like these days? And his dad said, well, I found a new church home. And he heard church, and he, he perked up, he was ready, but he thought, ah, church, that's sort of benign. There's not much to argue about there. People go to church, okay. It's not about the Bible. And he said, his dad said, you know, it's a small church. The pastor found out that I play the accordion, and so he made me the music minister. It'll be nice. We're searching. So again, David hears this, and he tightened, but he thought, ah, music ministry, Psh, there's not really anything there. And then he said, his dad said, you know, this other kind of interesting thing is happening. I've been praying about it, and I think I'm going to be a missionary. And so that struck a chord, and David sat upright, and he said, oh, really, a missionary? Well, where are you going to go, Dad? And his dad said, oh, well... I'm thinking of going to Spain. And that's when David snapped. And he said, oh, oh, of course, of course, you're going to Spain. Dad, that is so arrogant. Only a Christian would say, oh, those poor, benighted Spaniards need to learn about Jesus. And he continued into this monologue, this screed that he had prepared, just sort of belittling, deconstructing all of these things that his father held. And the father sat there and he just sort of quietly let him do his thing. And when he finally finished all that he had to say, his dad said, David, I'm really proud of everything you've done. And I truly am really glad that you enjoy studying all these things. And I respect all of these thoughts. But I've got to tell you that before I became a Christian, I was miserable. I wanted to end my life. I wanted to end my marriage. And David writes, I remembered suddenly, I was six years old and I was back in the car and I remember driving in the station wagon with my dad from South Dakota to Tucson because dad had had this miserable life, had had a nervous breakdown and he was rebuilding everything and he was holding a cigarette out the window the whole ride down. And I remember as a child, this had such a strong impression on me, about halfway through the trip, he pulled into a gas station and he just threw away all of his cigarettes and he never picked them up again. And I realized now that this was the start of the change in his life, that that's when it was happening to him. I know you've gone to college, his dad said, and you've learned all these things. But David, here's what I know. I followed Jesus and God gave me a family. And David realized that his own blind faith had been replaced by a kind of reflexive, immediate cynicism. And can't that be just as clumsy, just as thoughtless?
And so he sat up in his chair and he said to his dad, oh look, here comes the waitress. And they got their sprites and they got their hamburgers and they looked at each other, raised the glass, had a bite. And David writes, my dad didn't know this, but we were having communion. Friends, this epiphany, why don't we lower our eyes? Why don't we find God coming near to us in ways as intimate as our own lives? Why don't we look around and find all of these reminders that are bold and clear that the world is a manger and that there are stars all around. And thanks be to God. Amen.